13 and what the Bible says about favoritism. I'm looking forward to today because I'm always in need of reminders of what the Bible says. And I think it's easy for us to show favoritism to people that we're comfortable with or people that we're drawn to. And even without meaning to, that in turn can hurt others. My favorite part of um, this section is verse five. It says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? I long to be rich in faith, regardless of what is going on in the world around me. Not everyone knows my story, and that's okay, but I don't know theirs either, so therefore I cannot show favoritism to certain people because I don't know everyone's story. Bob Goff has a great quote that I wanted to share. It's in the book, Everybody Always. He says, each of us is surrounded every day by our neighbors. They're ahead of us, behind us, and on each side of us. They're every place we go. They're sacking groceries and attending city council meetings. They're holding cardboard signs on street corners and raking leaves next door. They play high school football and deliver the mail. They're heroes and hookers and pastors and pilots. They live on the streets and design our bridges. It's one thing we all have in common. We're all somebody's neighbor and they're ours. This has been God's simple yet brilliant master plan from the beginning. He made a whole world of neighbors. We call it earth, but God just calls it a really big neighborhood. So today we're just gonna focus on why it's important to love all of our neighbors because God gave us our neighbors to love equally without favoritism. I love Maggie's thoughts on our text today. Some really wise words from someone who's such a great part of our team here at Sherwood Oaks. Um, glad to be with you here this morning, um, here at the big show, as we call it down in Bedford. Um, it's always fun to be up at the East Campus. If you have a, a Bible with you or a Bible app that you like to use, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, as we continue our series called Relevant Faith, where we're just taking an in-depth look uh, into one of my favorite books of the entire Bible, the books of James. These five chapters give us so much wisdom in how to live out our life um, of faith. And so before we dive into this, let me just open us up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this place that we can gather here to worship and to hear from you and your word. Lord, would you please speak to us, speak to our hearts in a way that only you can do it, God. Um, there's a lot of convicting stuff in this text. And so I just pray, Lord, that yours will be the first voice that we hear. It's not gonna be mine, but it's yours as you speak words of gentleness and love and compassion to us. Lord, let it be you that we hear and let it be Jesus that we're more like as a result. And we pray this in his name, amen. So about 10 years ago, I started cycling and I had done a, a few rides um, on my own and a buddy of mine came to me one day and said, hey, there's a group of us going on a ride on Saturday. Do you wanna go with us? And I said, ah, no, man, I don't think I'm ready for that. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. You'll be fine, you'll be fine. He lied to me right to my face. I showed up that morning for the ride and I, I should have turned around as soon as I got there because when I got there, like guys were, were all wearing like matching jerseys 
and they were riding bikes that cost more than my car, like not collectively, but individually riding these bikes. And I had no business being there, but I thought, okay, I'm just going to give it my best. I'm going to, I'm going to try to hang on as long as I can. And so it comes time to go and I strap on my helmet extra tight. I clip in and uh, I try to hold on for dear life. We get about five miles into this 35 mile ride and I'm already gassed, like I'm barely hanging on, losing my breath, just trying to keep up. And as we're going, uh, we come around a curve and, and then we approach a hill. And so I'm like, oh great, I'm gonna just try to keep up with them as much as I can as we go up this hill. And about halfway up the hill, I look up, I barely have my breath, and everyone else in the group has already made it up over the hill. And I'm like, oh no, and I try to catch up and I start pedaling faster. And at that moment, God shined down his grace and his love and his mercy on me, and he allowed my chain to fall off of my bike. (laughs) I had to stop. I was so happy. Oh, thank you, Lord. And so I... I hop off of my bike before I start rolling backwards, fortunately, and, and I get off and I look up and the only person who has not crested the hill yet was my friend who had invited me to go on this ride. And right at that moment, he looked back and I looked up at him. We made eye contact and he kept on going. <laughs> I wasn't sad. I put on my chain. I turned around. It was the hardest 10 mile ride I had ever done in my life. But in that moment, when we made eye contact, man, he and I both knew that I didn't belong. Like we both knew I didn't belong in that group. You've ever been in a place like that? A place where you just felt like you didn't belong? Maybe it was at a dinner party with your spouse's coworkers. Uh, for, for most people, that kind of falls into the better for worse <laughs> category of, of marriage where you just do things because you, you have to. Um, so you went to the, the, the party and your spouse and coworkers, they're telling inside jokes. They're talking about office politics that you know nothing about. And so you're just kind of sitting there feeling like a bit of an outsider, feeling like you don't belong. Maybe you've taken steps towards living a more active lifestyle and so you join a gym and when you go to work out, you look around and you see people who actually know what they're doing on the machines and you're like, I'm just trying not to hurt myself on these by doing it wrong. You know, they have their routine and they're grunting as they work out and, and, and you're feeling what one place calls that gym intimidation where you just kind of feel like you don't belong. You feel like an outsider. I don't live here in Bloomington. I'm from good old Bedford, so you'll have to help me out on this one. But I hear that there are actually different classes of Kroger's in Bloomington. Okay, so you're familiar with this. This isn't just me. Okay, I, the, the, the one on the east side over by the mall is known as Krogucci. There, you got to make the little symbol I heard when you make it, say it. The one over on 2nd Street used to be um, known as Kroghetto, but then it was updated, and so now it's Kro-gentrified. <laughs> and so even, like, you can walk into a grocery store and feel like you don't belong, like maybe you're just a little bit out of place. I'll be honest, I feel that way every time I walk into the Kroger on the east side. Uh, you know, I'll take the Bedford, Walmart, and Aldi any day. <laughs> You know, the truth is at some point or another, as we go through life, like we all come to this place where uh, maybe we just feel like we don't belong. We feel like a a round peg trying to fit into a square hole. 
And we just struggle with that internally. And that's one thing when we feel like we don't belong, but it is a whole nother thing when we are made to feel like we don't belong. When we're made to feel like an outsider, when someone makes us feel like we're not welcome. And that can happen to anyone. It can happen anywhere, including Kroger's. And unfortunately, it even happens in the church. Maybe it's even happened to you. Maybe it's happened to someone that you love. And the attitude of making someone feel like they don't belong is, is, is ugly no matter where you are. But, man, it's especially repulsive in the church. The reason is because it completely misses the heart of God. Completely misses the heart of God. I think that's what James is getting at in our text today. Look at it with me. James chapter two, starting in verse one. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now let's stop there because I don't want us to miss the magnitude of what James is saying. James doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room in this verse, does he? He doesn't offer up any exceptions. He doesn't give us any conditions. It is just a clear command. If you believe in Jesus and you claim to follow him, you must not show favoritism. Put another way, Favoritism cannot coexist with faith in Christ. Favoritism cannot coexist with faith in Christ. They, they are at odds with one another. They work against one another. And to make his point clear, James tells a story starting in verse 2. He says, suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the clothes, fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so here we have, we have two people in the scenario that, that James creates. We have two people who came to worship. And the first one is wearing his finest clothes. He's wearing his jewelry, most likely in an attempt to flaunt his wealth or to show how important he thinks that he is. And in contrast, standing next to him is a poor man that maybe they had seen begging out on the street, wearing nothing but rags, and both of them come in to worship. And for the wealthy man, the, the crowd kind of parts out of his way like the Red Sea. And, and they, they bring him to the front where he is given the very best seat. If the story were today, he would have been given the coveted seat in the back row. But they bring him and they make sure that he's treated well and that he's comfortable. And, and, and you can almost hear the elders whispering to each other, hey, we really need to treat this guy well because we're about ready to approach next year's budget and we may need him. <laughs> and meanwhile, the other visitor that day is completely dismissed. He doesn't just feel like he doesn't belong. He's made 
to feel like he doesn't belong. They, they quickly size him up and they realize that he can't do anything for them. And so, so they just kind of write him off and they say, yeah, go stand over there or yeah, sit on the floor by my feet. And I think the reason why James is so livid about followers of Jesus showing this kind of favoritism and discrimination is because it completely misses the heart of God. In the eyes of God, no one deserves more or less based on external things that we want to measure by. Jesus died for both the rich and the poor. Both have equal value to him. And so who are we to make someone feel less than in the eyes of God by the way that we treat them? On top of that, James says that when you do this, you discriminate amongst Yourselves. You see, James is writing to a, a group of people, a group of followers of Jesus who have no power, no influence. He's writing to Christians who are poor and have been scattered from their homes because of persecution. You may remember the very first verse of, of James chapter one, it introduces us to the ones that he's writing to. And he says, to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered across the nation. The reason why they're scattered is not because they were on vacation or they wanted to. They scattered because persecution hit the church and they had to flee their home. And so these were, were poor Christians we even read Paul in, in Corinthians writing on behalf of the Jewish believers saying, please send money because they need help. And so the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they, they were poor. And so James is saying, listen, when you show favoritism to those who are wealthy, don't you just kind of discriminate amongst yourselves? One author puts it like this. They've made the church into a tool of persecution. They have, in effect, cited with the devil against God. I think that's what James is getting at in verse five. Look at it with me. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, James is not saying here that all poor people are rich in faith or that all rich people are poor in faith. I've, I've known exceptions to, to both. What James is doing is that he is giving us a warning against judging others based on appearances when God looks at their hearts. In fact, in verse five, he says, don't you know that the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom of God are just the ones who love him? The ones who love him. And so if God is looking at the heart, if Jesus died for the soul equally, then why would we look at meaningless external things like wealth or gender or race or ethnicity? Why would we show favoritism or discrimination to anyone based on what we see when God sees their heart? And if God has invited everyone to be a part of his family through Jesus, then who are we to make someone feel like they don't belong? This is a picture of my buddy, Alan. 
I met Alan while serving at the men's warming center in Bedford over the winter. Over the course of a few months, we struck up a really sweet friendship. I love that dude. In fact, he was just messaging me before I came out here asking if I wanted to go grab lunch today. On the last night that we served there before the shelter closed for the season, Alan and I were, were playing cards, we were playing spades. It's something we did every Thursday night. He likes to think that he taught me how to play spades. I knew long before how to play, but I'll let him, I'll let him think that. Um, funny story, one of our, one of our volunteers that, uh, that led up this ministry, um, Alan taught her how to play spades and she got pretty good at it. And Alan goes, man, you're ready for jail now. <laughs> Uh, and so we're sitting there, we're playing cards, we're cutting up, we're having a good time. And, and Alan looked up at me and he said, uh, so can I come to your church? I was like, man, absolutely. You can come anytime. I would love to have you. And he's like, all right, all right, all right. We went back to playing cards played a couple of hands, about 10 minutes went by and I'll never forget. Alan looked at me again, this time with a little bit more intensity in his eyes. And he said, would I be accepted at your church? I knew what he meant. Alan has scars from life all over his body. We all have scars, many of us carry them internally where people can't see them. Alan's scars, pretty visible. Scars that tell a story of his brokenness and pain and addiction, but they're also scars that tell the story of God's grace and how far he has brought him. If you just sit down and have a conversation with him, but unfortunately he's so used to people judging him just by his looks and writing them off. And so the weight of his question hung there in the air for a minute. And after a while, I looked at him. I said, listen, Alan, if you're not accepted at our church, then I'll walk out the door with you. And he got his big old smile. He's like, all right. And he slapped my hand and we went back to playing cards. Alan's been coming to the Bedford campus for the last couple of months. Got a message this morning during the 9.30 service that another man from the warming center, one of Alan's friends and his wife were attending this morning too. I think that this is why James is, is, is driving this point home so much about the danger of showing favoritism, about the danger of discriminating based on things that we see externally. He knows that eternity is at stake for people. And that as the church, as, as followers of Jesus, we ought to go out of our way to guard against any kind of favoritism or discrimination that might get in the way of what God is doing in someone's life. And to really make sure that we get the importance of this, James closes with these words in verses 8 through 13. That's a strong warning. In fact, it's one of the strongest warnings that we'll read in, in the entire five chapters of James. This is what he says. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. 
But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These 13 verses James unleashes every literary tool available to him to make his point. He tells stories. He asks rhetorical questions. And if that weren't enough, he roots this command to not show favoritism in the very nature and character of God. James points back to the Old Testament. And he says, listen, if you keep the royal law, the law that is rooted and founded in the love of God, the same God who from the very beginning made provisions for the orphans and the widows and the foreigner. If you love your neighbor as yourself, as God has instructed us to do out of his love for us, then you are doing what is right and good and pleasing to the Lord. But if you don't, If you don't, if you break this law, then you stand just as guilty before God as anyone who murders or commits adultery. It's packing some serious weight behind this command. And he challenges us to live and act and speak as those who have been transformed by God's grace through Jesus. And and those who are living in the freedom of that grace, we are now building God's kingdom here on earth and paving the way for all to come in, all to be a part of God's family where they belong. That's now our commission to go out and do. So if God is showing them mercy and not judgment, then who are we to do anything differently? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. The world doesn't need your judgment. They need your mercy. Before we close today, James says something in verse nine that, that I, want, I, I want to make sure that we don't go by too quickly. I think it, it, there are words that should cause us to pause and reflect a little bit longer. He says, if you show favoritism, if you show favoritism. And, and I think that right here, before we close, we need to be honest with ourselves. We, we need to honestly ask ourselves, is there a person or a group of people that I feel favoritism for? Or conversely, is there a person or a group of people that I feel prejudiced against? And you may not go out of your way to show favoritism or discrimination, but are there subtle ways in which those come out in your life? Does it come out in the jokes that you tell? In the phrases that you use when you feel like you're amongst safe people? Is it in the judgmental glances you give or the emotions you feel when you see someone who doesn't look or act or think like you do? Are there certain people that you look down upon or that you avoid or that you think less of 
And I'm wondering this morning, are you willing to to look in the mirror of scripture where it exposes those places of sin and biases and prejudices? Are you willing to look into the mirror of scripture to confess those to God? See, the truth is, is that authentic religion should lead us towards people who don't look or act or think the way that we do should lead us towards people, not away from people. And so one way to know if your faith is doing anything in your life beyond Sunday mornings is just ask yourself this, is my love for God leading me to love others that I would have passed by or overlooked otherwise? Is my love for God causing me to love others that I would have passed by or turned from otherwise? If it's not, then you need to ask yourself, why? Because Jesus modeled this kind of love for us, the ones that everyone else passed by or turned from, Jesus moved towards and he showered them with love and grace and mercy. And as followers of Jesus and in light of the warning that James gives us today, my question is, are you willing to allow your feelings towards others to be shaped by Jesus alone Are you willing to allow your feelings towards others to be shaped by Jesus and the example that he left for us? Not your experiences, not your traditions, not your family upbringing, not your party line, not the news channel that you watch. Are you willing to allow your feelings towards others to be shaped by Jesus alone? In her book, Bird by Bird, Anne Lamott writes these convicting words. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And some of us need to confess to God this morning that our biases and our prejudices have created a a God in our own image in order to justify our favoritism or discrimination. And meanwhile, the one true God has invited everyone into his family through Jesus and has formed himself this this beautifully eclectic church made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, those that you like and those that you don't. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then I'm telling you, heaven, heaven is going to be scandalous to you. (laughs) As I'm out in the community, in Bedford, and word is getting out more and more about uh, Sherwood Oaks, Bedford, who we are, things that we're, things that we're doing and we're about. Uh, one of the most common questions that I get from people is, uh, so what kind of church are you? There's a little bit of skepticism in that question, you know, with us being a campus of, of that big church up in Bloomington. And uh, so some people ask it a little skeptically, some people ask it authentically. It doesn't matter to me. I enjoy answering that question either way. And so as we close this morning, can I just share with you the kind of church that I pray every day for us to be? Every day. This is my prayer, not just for Sherwood Oaks Bedford, but for Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. I pray that we will be a church where it is okay to not be okay. that you don't have to have all of your stuff together to come and worship with us because none of us do. 
And if you think you do, you're probably further away from that than what you realize. My prayer is to look out and see a church filled with people who are honest about their brokenness and their imperfections, that are honest about their scars, that don't try to hide them anymore because they speak a story of grace. They speak a story of hope for others who share the same ones. My prayer is to look out and see a place where homeless people and addicts, where divorced people and married people, rich, young, old, poor, people from around the world, you name it, a place where we gather each week to worship God and then we go out and we serve in our world and in our communities and the only thing that unites us is Jesus because he is the only thing that matters. He is the only thing that we need. I'm wondering, when it comes down to it, are you willing to do what it takes to make sure it oaks a place like that? Am I? Are you willing to lay down your favoritism, your prejudices, your biases? Are you willing to lay those down for the cause of Christ and the sake of others? Because favoritism cannot coexist with faith in Christ. Can't. May we be a church that welcomes people with open arms and we teach them how to know, love, and follow Jesus more. May we be a church that tears down walls instead of building them up. May we be a church that goes out of our way to make a way for all people to come back to God, to experience his love, and to be a part of his family where they belong. That's the way that God loved us through Jesus. Let's go out and love others in that same way. Would you stand with me as I pray? Father, thank you for your love and your grace. And Lord, your mercy to me when I have not gotten this right. Thank you, Lord, for the way, even over the last week, of you have exposed my own biases and prejudices that continue to live in my heart. Lord, would you, would you do the work in me to just remove those so that I can love people the way that, that you do? And Father, I may be alone in that this morning, but I have a feeling I'm not. I think all of us carry some of these things, whether we want to admit it or not. And so, Lord, would, would you just continue to work in us through your Holy Spirit to convict us in your kindness, Lord, to lead us to a place where we repent from that, we turn from it, and we love others how you have loved them. Lord, we love others how you have loved us with this reckless love, this abandoned type of love. Lord, send us out to a world who is hurting and broken with a message that there is a God who loves them, that Jesus died for their sin, they can find new life and a fresh start in Him. And no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, there is hope in Jesus. It's not just for us, it's for everyone. So God, would you please work in our heart and do what only you can do, what you know needs to be done. And may we love others the way that you have loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.